Good morning, Woodmont. Welcome to worship on uh, September the 13th. If you are visiting with us, we'd love for you to go to our website and you can uh, let us know that you're uh, joining us and we can get you information. We can get you our newsletter. Uh, a couple of quick things before we begin. Uh, this fall, Amory Farmer and I, our Connections Director, are pushing a new small group concept called Five at Five. We are encouraging you to gather with uh, four or five other people at five o'clock on a porch, uh, on a patio, so that we can continue to, to keep our community and our fellowship alive. And if you have questions about that, you can reach out to, uh, to Anne Marie and she can help guide you on that. Also, our Wednesday night programming will continue this week uh, with a, a, a deeper Bible study being offered and our racial reconciliation series. This week, we're talking to Centoya uh, Brown um, and she was the one who received clemency from Governor Haslam. And so we're gonna hear her story uh, this Wednesday night, that's at 6.30. Join me for a word of prayer, if you would. Loving God, open our hearts and minds that we can hear a word from you and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we are starting a brand new fall sermon series called Common Ground, uh, finding unity in a polarized world world. If you know anything about the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, then you know that our denomination came out of the Presbyterian church uh, back in the early days of the American frontier, the early 19th century. In fact, we're the oldest denomination to be founded on uh, American soil. Uh, our founders were Presbyterian ministers, uh, uh, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, father and son, as well as Barton Stone, who was a Baptist minister. And they were trying to get away from all of the divisions and petty differences between uh, denominations, all the things that denominations and different Christian traditions argue over. And, and then what their goal was, was to establish a movement or one church that would be united in Christ and that would honor the prayer that Jesus prays in John's gospel that all might be one so that the world might believe. That was the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples on the night before he was, he was crucified. And so we are trying to continue to honor that wish of Christ. And in our tradition, we have some special sayings. Uh, things like, Christian unity is our polar star. That which unites us is greater than that which divides us. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love or charity. And where the Bible speaks, we speak. But where the Bible is silent, we are silent. These are some of the historical sayings of the Christian church. And so as we enter this fall, we are now just seven weeks away from a very heated presidential election. Uh, those come around every four years. And so between now and then, there are going to be many issues that are going to try to divide people and pit all of us against each other. Uh, things like taxes and abortion and immigration, health care, uh, police brutality, lawlessness, uh, COVID response, 
law and order. These are just some of the things that are going to be talked about uh, and are being talked about in this election cycle. And so in this church, which is a big tent church, we have Republicans and Democrats. We have liberals and conservatives. We have moderates, libertarians, people of all different political persuasions. And there is perhaps no greater time, I think, than right now to remember that there is still far more that unites us as Christians than there are things that divide us due to our politics and our worldviews and our ideologies. And so we have to remember that because in the coming weeks, we're gonna be tempted to think that our world is so broken and so divided that there is no hope. But that's simply not the case. There's always hope because we are more alike than we are different. And so that's why we're calling this sermon series Common Ground. During this series, we are going to study one of the most famous uh, stretches of scripture in the entire Bible. That's the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because as Christians, we can all agree that we are called to follow Jesus and we are called to take his teachings seriously. We're called to apply them to our lives. Uh, most biblical scholars will tell you that the Sermon on the Mount was probably not uh, one sermon given in one setting, but it is a compilation of Jesus's most famous teachings. And, and, and we find them in, in these three uh, passages of scripture in Matthew's gospel, these three chapters in Matthew's gospel. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that we find a basic summary of Jesus's core teachings. And so when people are telling me, I wanna get better at studying the Bible, I wanna read scripture, I wanna reflect upon scripture, I usually tell them to go and start with the Sermon on the Mount because there is so much in these chapters that needs to be unpacked, that needs to be applied to our lives. And so I wanna encourage you this fall to read and study these chapters on your own. Don't just wait for Sunday when we read them in church. Read them and study them on your own. And, and we need to ask the question, how can we use these verses to see into the mind and heart of Jesus Christ so that we can better know and understand the man who changed the world forever? If you can work to follow these teachings, and some of them are very challenging, they will change your life. They will change your character. They will change your relationships and your family and your marriage. Uh, they will change your heart and transform the way that you see and act in the world. I'm also recommending a book uh, during this series, a book that's written by Arthur Brooks, who teaches at Harvard. The book is called Love Your Enemies. And the subtitle of that book is How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt. We are now living, Brooks says, in a culture of contempt, and it's not healthy. People not only disagree with each other, but they have contempt and animosity towards each other. And according to Brooks, the only answer to our culture of contempt is love and warm-heartedness. And Jesus teaches us that in the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus' understanding of the blessed life or the blessed life. And when Jesus says the word uh, blessed, we can translate that to mean happy, uh, fulfilled, content. But what Jesus considers to be the blessed life is very different from what our world would consider to be the blessed or happy life. Uh, it has nothing to do for Jesus, it has nothing to do with money and, and material things. It has everything to do with the state of our heart. Jesus is describing his version of a life that is defined by inner joy, which is untouchable by the outside world. And in these Beatitudes, he is once again turning conventional wisdom on its head to teach us truths about the kingdom of God. So he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is another way of saying those who are humble. It's the opposite of, uh, of being arrogant or having pride. It means being humble and reverent, not conceited and self-satisfied. I don't think Jesus is exclusively referring to the economically poor, even though in Luke's gospel called the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus just says, blessed are the poor. But I will say that it's much more challenging to be poor in spirit, to be humble, when you are wealthy, affluent, and used to getting your own way. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult. But life has a way of humbling all of us, and we've figured that out this year, 2020. Poor in spirit means being dependent upon God, looking to God for daily strength and guidance, daily hope and inspiration. Uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, he's a theologian, German theologian, once said, religion at its core is the feeling of absolute dependence. And some people criticized him for saying that. But in our world of independence and rugged individualism, this notion of dependence is countercultural. Acknowledging that we are dependent upon God is the first step to humility, and it's probably the most important step in finding spiritual happiness. Realizing that we can't do everything on our own. Realizing that there's so many things that are outside of our control you know, all of us have things in our lives that, that we need to just turn over to God because we can't handle them by ourselves. We can't control them, and yet we still try to, but we need to turn them over to God through the power of prayer and then just let them go. There's situations and relationships and predicaments that we need to turn over to God. The sooner we quit trying to control some of these things, the better off we're going to be. Jesus next says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Sometimes we think of this beatitude as just speaking about those who are mourning a tragedy or uh, the loss of a loved one. I had to travel to, to Boston last week uh, to do a, a, a service for a, a friend of mine, a son-in-law of uh, some Woodmont members. And uh, that was very sad. And that family is mourning and going through a very difficult time. And, and that's certainly one message of this beatitude, but, but it also can mean 
Blessed are those who are desperately sorry for their own sinfulness and their own brokenness and the effects that it has on other people in life. It also means blessed are those who are desperately sorry for the great suffering and heartache that takes place in our world every single day, even in this community, even in this church. Blessed are those who think about what other people have to go through and endure as opposed to just focusing on their own lives and their own troubles. Blessed are those who are compassionate. Blessed are those who have a conscience, who are not just absorbed in their own affairs all the time. Only those who are truly sorry for the things that are wrong in this world will be the ones that are motivated to do anything about it. And then when they do something about it, that's when they will find real joy and real happiness. Those who mourn are those who show compassion and mercy. Those who go out of their way to help other people, to serve other people, to make a difference in the lives of other people, they will find comfort, Jesus says. Next, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek does not mean weak. Let me say that again. Meek does not mean weak. It means quiet strength. Meekness is the opposite of aggressiveness, the opposite of those who are pushy and rude and offensive and always trying to have things their own way. The meek learn to live out the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about. The meek are humble. The meek in this world are concerned less about their own rights and privileges and more about what they can do to help take care of others. They submit themselves to God's will and they deny themselves and, and they put others first instead of always trying to meet their own desires. God's will gets accomplished in this world whether we are on board with it or not. But the meek understand that part of living out what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, means that you have to be intentional about putting other people first. The meek in this world are considerate. They are reserved, humble-minded. They are not self-asserting. And I will acknowledge that in this culture in which we live, especially in this political culture, it can be tough to be meek because that might mean that you're gonna get run over, taken advantage of, and sometimes you will. Jesus himself was crucified. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. You know, I think being merciful means knowing when other people have had enough especially in a year like 2020, where a lot of people have had enough. It means cutting others some slack from time to time. Being merciful means being kind and compassionate, not only in spirit, but also in words and in actions. You know, be kind to everybody because everybody is fighting some kind of battle and you just don't know what it is. Everybody carries what I, have always called invisible baggage in life. We all have it. Some people have way more than their fair share of invisible baggage, but as human beings, we carry it. And so you don't ever know what somebody is dealing with. So be kind, show mercy. You know, some people are so 
self-absorbed and so narcissistic that they just think that the world revolves around them and their needs. And that's a problem. And I think social media has actually made that worse in our culture. If we are disinterested in the lives of other people, then they will probably be disinterested in our lives as well. But if others see that we care, then they will care in return. So we could translate this fifth beatitude by saying this, blessed are those who walk in the shoes of others, who see through the eyes of others, who think the thoughts of others, who feel the feelings of others. Blessed are those who care for other people because others will then care for them in return. It's this beatitude that goes hand in hand with what we call the golden rule that Jesus teaches. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if you want mercy, if you want to receive mercy, then show mercy to other people. If you want to be forgiven, then show forgiveness to other people. If you want people to be kind to you, then show kindness to other people. The sixth beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Another way to translate this might be to say, blessed is the person whose motives are entirely unmixed, for that person shall see God. Which begs the obvious question, are any of us capable of having unmixed motives? It's very rare for people in our day and age to do things with completely unmixed motives. I mean, think about it. Even our finest actions as human beings sometimes have mixed motives. Do we do the work of the church for Christ or to be seen? Do we show up on Sundays to feel better about ourselves or to show other people that we're going to church? Do we give to charity to be recognized or do we do it selflessly because we, we want to help and make a difference? Do we read the Bible and pray on a regular basis to be overly pious or because we truly want to grow closer to God? Jesus says that those who are pure in heart with unmixed motives will see God. This beatitude is describing our intentions. What are our intentions? Are they pure? Are they selfish? We might be able to fool other people in life, but we can never fool God. And the Sermon on the Mount, the entire Sermon on the Mount, it becomes clear that Jesus is concerned about our motives, the thoughts and emotions that lead to our actions. Let me say that again. Jesus is concerned about our motives, our thoughts, and our emotions that lead to our actions. Seventh beatitude, certainly one of my favorites. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. There is a difference between a peacemaker and a peace lover. I know lots of people who love peace and who would say that they want peace, but how many of us work for peace? How many of us work to build bridges to serve those who are hurting? There is a proactive component to being a peacemaker. We are called to reconcile relationships because they can become completely broken. We are sometimes called to face very difficult situations 
in order to make them better and not just avoid them or stay away from them. I once heard a, a, a philosophy professor at Vanderbilt, a guy named John Locks, he made a comment that I've never been able to forget. He said, there is so much passivity in this world. So many people just avoid things out of sight, out of mind, so that they don't have to deal with it. Robert Schuller was the pastor of Crystal Cathedral for a long time in, in California, and he wrote this book called The Be Happy Attitudes. It's actually a great book on the Beatitudes, but, but this is what Schuller says. He says, who are the peacemakers? They're not necessarily the people who are talking about peace all the time. Peacemakers are those who are doing something, creating something, building something, bridges mostly. Maybe peacemakers are people like you and me who in our own ways are trying to bring Jesus Christ into human hearts. Do you want peace in your family? Do you want peace in your community? Do you want peace in other races and in other cultures? Schuller says, there will not be peace anywhere as long as there is a war going on in your heart and in your soul. Lastly this morning, the eighth and final element of the blessed life, the happy life. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus was always brutally honest. Throughout the gospels, we never find him claiming that following him would be an easy road, especially back in the first century. It required incredible sacrifice and commitment. And although we are now blessed to live in a country where we have freedom of religion, where we can freely practice our religion, True faith and true discipleship is not something that is easy or convenient. Never has been. But why would Jesus say that those who suffer are blessed or happy or fulfilled? The answer is simple. To suffer for your sake and to suffer for doing the right thing is to identify with Christ himself. Because Christ suffered even unto death. The Christian God is a God who suffers. Jürgen Moltmann wrote a book called The Crucified God. And as long as we follow Christ in this world, we will suffer for many reasons. Not all the time, hopefully not most of the time, but there will be a lot of time when we suffer. But Christ says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So do the right thing. Tell the truth. That's what we're called to do. These beatitudes represent what I believe is common ground for us as Christians. We can all agree that, that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples at the end of this passage, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, so it gives light to all in the house. And so, friends, if there's ever been a time when we need to let our light shine in the world, in our culture, in our community, it's right now. So in the coming weeks, let's take these powerful 
teachings of Jesus seriously. Let's apply them to our lives and let's do everything we can to let our light shine before other people. Amen.